You know, is hope a crutch for humanity? Does hope hold up? There's a popular song that says hope is a four-letter word, and I don't think they mean it in a nice way, meaning sometimes maybe does it let us down? Or maybe is that a different kind of thing? Is the, is the world thinks of hope as wishful thinking. Sometimes we think of hope as wishful thinking. Uh, famous poet Wallace Stevens says this in one of his poems, In contentment, I still feel the need of some imperishable bliss. Something hardwired into us, hardwired into the human soul that needs hope, that's beyond something we can find in this present experience. We need it as believers, but guess what? So does every other human being you will ever meet in this world has the very same need for hope. But oftentimes we're operating in, anybody is operating either in some form of idealism or cynicism, meaning some form of idealistic hope that maybe we can create for ourselves or they're on the other side of that coin because it's all fallen apart and so they've just operating in failed hope and we've become cynical. It's either creating hope or failed hope and we sometimes can vacillate between the two of those things, can't we? What if hope is beyond our ability, both beyond our ability to produce it and beyond our ability to lose it? That would mean that it has to be given by someone who has the power to give real hope. Our, our statement in our vision statement about hope says this. We rest in God's promise that his children will share in his glory expectantly engaging others while steadfastly enduring the trials of life. So, uh, kids, I want the kids to, I want, your, I want their, your attention for a moment, kids, because as we say each week, uh, you can help us adults <laughs> have a childlike faith. We talked about that last week with faith. I want you guys to listen to three things, listen for three things as we look through God's Word. Uh, one is why do we need hope? Why do we need hope? Second, how do we get it? And third, how do we enjoy it? Okay, so how do we, why do we need hope? How do we get it? And how do we enjoy it? So with that said, let's turn to God's inerrant and infallible word. Romans 8, verses 16 to 25. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that... The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray, ask him to guide us through this time in his word. Father, we do thank you that you have spoken, that hope is a sure thing, not wishful thinking, but that hope comes from you. We thank you for this word that you've put before us now, and I pray that you would speak in power to us with the words of life of the gospel for our good, most of all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. On uh, September 9th, 1965, Commander James Stockdale uh, launched off of the USS Oriskany in his A-4 fighter jet on mission in the Vietnam War. He uh, took enemy fire and his jet was disabled and he had to eject. He parachuted into a small village where he was captured, beaten, and taken prisoner. Commander Stockdale was hailed in the infamous Hanoi Hilton prison for seven and a half years. (laughs) He was the senior ranking naval officer in that prison, so therefore he was the object of many tortures and beatings, uh, continually denied medical treatment, eventually locked in solitary confinement in a three foot by nine foot windowless cell with one light bulb, legs locked in leg irons at night. He survived it and made it home. He was interviewed later, and he was asked about, uh, what about, what were the prisoners that didn't make it? What were they like? And he said, oh, that was easy. They were the optimists. Oh, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come, and Christmas would go. Then they'd say, we're, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come, and Easter would go. Then Thanksgiving, then it would be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. This is a very important lesson, he says. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. So the, this has now been come, come to be known the uh, Stockdale Paradox. <laughs> that's a, it's an inspiring statement, and it gave... Uh, Admiral Stockdale, the guts to get through seven and a half years as a POW. I want to say that hope is that and more. Um, In a sense, he's saying hope for the best and plan for the worst, right? But I want to say that it's more than just stiff upper lip, gritting your teeth and pulling through. You know, we can come up with coping mechanisms, but again... What if hope is beyond our ability to produce it for ourselves, but also beyond our ability to lose it? Again, it must be given. But don't we get it the other way around? I do it all the time. I know we always get it the other way around, and we try to produce our own hope in the things that we can see, the things that we can control, the things we can manage, the things we can fix and change so that we can secure in the now our future. Right? Don't we functionally do that all the time? But you see, Paul says there in verse 24 in our passage that's before us, 
It says, hope that is seen is not hope. If it's something I can see, I can control it. I can fix it, or at least I think I can, right? And I can change my circumstances so that I can hopefully produce the results that I want. And sometimes it actually is helpful, right? We can actually change things. We can do things, and sometimes we do find it helpful. And sometimes it does produce, produce the results that we want. But it doesn't answer the deep ache of the soul. The, the groanings that, that Paul talks about in here, the desire for that imperishable bliss, or as C.S. Lewis calls it, the inconsolable secret. But you see, Jesus has come to give us what we can't produce for ourselves, a hope that is tied directly to being united with him, a hope that will never fail us. So let's talk about our need for hope, because this passage speaks to it. We'll talk about our need for hope, we'll talk about our problem with hope, and we'll talk about how we can enjoy it. So our need. Again, it's the groanings. The groanings, verse 22 and 23, speak of groanings. Both creation and we are groaning. Now, the Greek word behind that word groaning could also be translated to sigh, to grumble, or get this, to give vent to censorious feelings. What does that mean, you ask? What are censorious feelings? Well, feelings that we feel like we need to censor. How about that? Does that make sense? You ever feel like you need to censor yourself? <laughs> like, I'm grumbling, I'm groaning, and something is not right, and I feel like i gotta, ooh, I got to pull it together, though. I can't let this out. <laughs> Paul's saying that's what the groanings are. Sometimes when someone asks us, hey, how you doing? And we go, I'm fine. But we're really not. How often does that happen? You all know the, the, the acronym I have for fine that I borrowed from another pastor of mine years ago, right? You know, when we say we're fine, we mean we're fouled up, insecure, erotic, and exhausted. Who's there? I am. That's what we mean. But we have to censor it. We've got to hold ourselves together. We can't look weak. We can't look like we're struggling, right? Because what if somebody questions my faith? What if, what if we question that in ourselves? What if... What if something's wrong with me? What if I'm not really following Jesus? All those things go there and we struggle. But what if we were more honest? What if we let those groanings out? I want to say that it's an act of faith to groan. I don't mean the, the self-focused, woe is me, complaining. I mean groaning for redemption. Groaning that all things would be made new. We're going to sing that song later. I'm talking about that kind of groaning. What if we were more honest about our need for hope? To vent the censorious feelings. I think that's why we have blues music in this world. I think the blues musicians get the groanings. I think they do. I think if we vent, if we groan more with one another, we'll, we'll find ourselves more laid bare for the power of hope, the hope of the gospel to actually feed the deepest longings of our souls, the inconsolable secret, the thing we need most. And just briefly, uh, Paul talks about the fact that creation is groaning. Okay? It's not just us. Creation itself is groaning. He starts with that conversation. 
But think about what it's groaning for. Did you hear what it's groaning for? The revealing of sons of God. Us. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? We can look out there and see a beautiful, vast, glorious creation. And you know what? Creation's singing to the glory of God. Creation sings it when we don't. And yet it's groaning, eagerly longing. That eager expectation, it's sort of like a, a, a child sitting at the window, like on a, their tiptoes, waiting for dad to get home, you know, just running out there. Yes! The creation is like that, looking for us to, to simply live out our faith in this world. Isn't that awesome that we have that kind of purpose? And there's the need for hope. Creation needs hope. <laughs> Paul talks about the futility in this passage, subjected to futility. Creation was subjected to futility. Well, we feel that, don't we? That could also be translated emptiness, frustration, purposelessness, meaninglessness. <laughs> you ever struggled with any of that? It's part of my story of how the Lord got a hold of me. I was in college and I was just sort of trying on all the different worldviews that were out there that I heard in college. And I functionally, in my mind and my heart, uh, I don't think I intentionally did it, but I did it. I debunked God in my college years. I debunked truth. I debunked reality, existence, all those things. And you know what it did? Send me down, sent me down the abyss of despair. God let me go there so that I could feel my desperate need of hope. And realized that I could not fix it. I could not produce it in myself. But you know what? God got a hold of me in that desperation. And you know how he did it? Ordinary means. Other believers pursuing me again and again and again. And sitting under the word again and again and again. That God made himself known to me. And he gave me hope that I couldn't make happen for myself. Paul talks about, if we're continuing to talk about our need for hope, he talks here about the uh, slavery to corruption, bondage to corruption is how it's said in the ESV, or slavery to decay, it could be said that way. Who's feeling that one? Are our bodies slowing down? Do we get tired? How about the glaring one, death? We don't have to like it. We don't have to get, come to terms with it or be okay with it. I was talking with one of our own recently who's recently lost a loved one. He said, you know, I'm just ready for the death of death. It doesn't have to be okay because we weren't made for it. And that's why it hurts. And that's why we need hope. The, uh, this enslavement, slavery to decay, it also comes in the form of addiction. Now, we can think of an addict in our mind, someone who's on maybe some hardcore stuff and their li lives are falling apart, but guess what? In some ways, we're all kind of addicts. Most of the time, we can operate with something that's very subtle that can sort of be hidden inside. Sometimes people get into the, the hard stuff that really destroys them on the outside, too. And, you know, I have a real heart for addicts. I really do, because you know what, most of the time an addict doesn't just wake up one morning and go, you know what, I'm going to take some really hardcore stuff and destroy my life. That's not how it starts. It's something subtle. It's something like, I'm kind of hurting today. I'm sad. 
and I want to find something to make me feel a little bit better. It could be something really innocent, really small, but we begin to grow that need more and more of that thing, whatever that thing is to make me feel better, to numb the pain, and we put our weight on something that cannot bear us up. We all kind of do it in subtle ways. You know what I like to have at night sometimes? A bowl of ice cream. Sometimes it just makes me feel good. <laughs> you know, you can have a great career. And a great career is a lousy God. You can have, you, you can desire to be liked by people. And that may be good, but it's a lousy God. It won't hold you up. So you may be hearing that I'm actually beginning to touch on the problem that we have with hope. We place it on the wrong things. That's our second point. The, the problem with hope is that's what we do. Paul says in verse 24 again, he says that hope that is seen is not hope. I, I want to spend a little bit of time on this because we got to get to the root, the heart, the core of the problem, the, whole, the, the core of the issue. What are the seen things? You know, we're, we're bombarded every day by offers for hope. Every day. Something's coming at us, offering hope. Uh, I mean, you can hear it on ads on the radio. Hey, if you, if you bought this, your life will be better. You need to have this right now because it'll make your life easier. Uh, really, the offers for hope come to us every day on these little things that are in our pockets. Like social media, for example. We scroll through and we have a like on our post and it gives us a little hit of dopamine and we feel a little bit better about ourselves or we get on the Amazon app and find something that I really feel like I need and I buy it and I, it shows up at my door and I feel a little bit better and I feel like I've got a little bit more hope for the moment and it's really just us placing hope on things that just come and go, they come and go. Hope is, I've heard it described that hope is the meeting place of desire and expectation. We have desire. Remember, it's that imperishable bliss, that thing in us that's wired into us that's ultimately made for God. We, we have this desire, and we find something that we think we expect will meet that desire. And we put our hope in that. You see those two meeting places. And so, you know what? You can use that now. You have a diagnostic for your heart. Because you can ask yourself, what am I desiring right now? What do I really want? What's the desire under the desire? Right? You keep going down below next thing till you get to the core desire. And then you go, what am I looking to to meet it? If it's not Jesus, it's going to crumble underneath the weight of your need for hope. It's those meeting places. It reveals the idols of our hearts. It reveals the lousy gods <laughs> that is no God. And the deep ache, the desire for the imperishable bliss, the inconsolable secret remains. So what do we do about it? Well, we've been reminded of true hope in this passage. How do we enjoy it? How do we, how do we get it? I want to, uh, again, quote the, the broader uh, quote here of Lewis when he was talking about the inconsolable secret. He says, in speaking of this desire, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. 
I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia, romanticism, and adolescence. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying there's something in there that hurts. We need it so bad. And we try to put labels on it, like, oh, it's that feeling of nostalgia. Oh, that's romanticism. Oh, that's wishful. Th- it's, you know, we try to call it names so we can push it to the side and just carry on with life. But he goes on to say this, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. It means real hope is beyond our ability to produce it and beyond our ability to lose it because hope is a person. And it's Jesus. How do we enjoy hope? How do we enjoy this hope? Well, look back up. Uh, I started our passage in verse 16. I don't know if you noticed that in in my Bible, the little section break is after verse 17. But we backed up because it's all one constant thought by Paul. But verse 16 gets at how we enjoy God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, be glory with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Uh, this reads kind of like Ephesians 2 did a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you remember, but Paul was like kind of making up words in the Greek. He was taking the prefix that means with and, and slapping it on the front of another word because he's showing us that We are with Christ in everything. We are united with him. And that is how we enjoy hope. He's saying the spirit with testifies. Literally, that's what he's saying. With testifies with our spirit. Uh, That we're fellow heirs with Christ. We're with heirs. Literally, it would be how that could be translated. We with suffer with Jesus. And we are with glorified. There's all these withs, with Christ, in Christ. You see, our hope is integrally tied to Jesus, to our union with him. That's how we enjoy it. Do you know that everything that is Jesus's is now yours? All of it. His reign, death, his suffering, his resurrection, everything that is his is yours. Because you're in union with Christ. We're in union with him. It means it's given. Not produced. It's received. Now, some of you might be sitting here struggling with this, saying to yourself, this sounds nice, Michael, but I, sometimes, I just don't feel it. I just don't feel that blissful hope that you're talking about. It's okay, because we're still in this present age where we're still suffering. We're still suffering in this life. And sometimes we can be tempted to put the, the weight of our hope on the longing for the experience, not on the person of Jesus. You see the difference? We can look for the, the extraordinary moments, those euphoric moments, those mountaintop moments, and we can place our hope on wanting and needing that more than we do the, just the truth of who we are in Christ. The daily, ordinary things. We, we spend our lives sometimes looking for those, or, those extraordinary moments. That's like 1% of life, right? 
And we go through the rest of life just waiting for that. When we miss the ordinary, we miss the ordinary where God meets us. The world says do uh, large things in famous ways as fast as possible. (laughs) But that's really just chasing after self-glory. But Jesus says rest. Rest in the reality that you'll share in my glory and do the daily things. That's what hope produces in us, a long obedience in the same direction. So what do you do if you don't feel it? Keep listening. I don't mean keep listening to me. I mean, I guess you can, but I mean keep listening to what God says in his word. Keep listening to the spirit who's testifying with you that you're a child of God, that you're a fellow heir with Christ. It's the ordinary means of grace. But you got to hear the truer truth. See, this is the truer truth because we can convince ourselves in our minds and our hearts of all kinds of truths, the things that we think are true, right? Like, oh, you know, I'm just not feeling it, so there's some, something must be wrong with me. You know, I'm, I, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm beyond help. Maybe I'm beyond hope. Maybe this, this, sin, this sin I'm struggling with is, is beyond forgiveness. What if Jesus casts me out? Those are those things we cook up in our minds and hearts, but we have to go back to the truer truth because we're, child, we're, we're, we're children of God. Never to be cast out, always to be co-heirs with Jesus. That is the truer truth. Okay, three brief points of application. What do, what do we practically do with this? How does this practically play out? How can I know that I'm enjoying the hope of Christ? How can I know? How can you know? It comes out of our, the statement that we have in our vision statement under hope. Uh, the, the, one, the first one is it, we'll see a movement, not all at once, but a movement from frantic living to rested humility. What do I mean by that? Well, if my hope is in the things I'm chasing, if my hope is in uh, uh, recognition or purpose or affirmation or people liking me or a great career or whatever, we'll be frantically living. <laughs> we will not be resting in hope. We'll be chasing after uh, producing our own hope, producing our own glory. But if my hope is in Christ, then I am believing that he shares his glory with me. Does that land on you, that Jesus wants to share his glory with you? Now, Jesus' glory is, uh, is upside down to the world. Right? The, the world's version of glory is like, hey, look at me, aren't I great? Like, make me feel better. I'm awesome, right? And Jesus' glory was revealed most pointedly on the cross. He was glorified in self-sacrifice, giving up everything to save us. That was the point of his greatest glory, his death and his resurrection. The way up is the way down. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. The way of suffering is the way of glory. But if our path is the way up is the way up, then every step upward we make, we're going to have more and more fear that we might slip and fall back down. Or someone might come along and knock us down, and we feel like we lose everything. But if the way up is the way down, then we're in Christ, and we're resting, and we're secure in that 
Okay, second point of application. What does this look like practically? Well, we're expectantly engaging others. That's in the statement there. We're expectingly, expectantly engaging others. Now, that means a, a number of different things, but I'll, I'll get at one thing particularly. If I am a co-heir with Christ, and you're a co-heir with Christ, and you're a co-heir with Christ, and you're a co-heir, like, get it, if we're all co-heirs, then it's a, a plurality of fellow heirs in Christ, meaning we have a grander horizon. We have the, the, the hope of glory when we're interacting with each other. I'll get, it, I'll get at it this way. The, uh, Tim Keller's book, Meaning of Marriage, if you haven't read it, it's fantastic. Best book I've ever read on marriage. Uh, I use it when I do premarital counseling. And at one point, he talks about the fact that, hey, anybody can have a great marriage. Believer, non-believer, anybody can have a great marriage. But when two believers come together, they have a grander horizon, the hope of glory. So that when you enter into marriage, it's the mo- one of the most intense human relationships, right? It's, it's hard, isn't it? It's the most sanctifying thing you'll probably enter into. Guess what? You hurt one another. You sin against each other. You see each other and you go, wow, why are they, why are they still doing that? Why do they still like, leave the toothpaste out with the top off? Or why do they, you know, all the little things, but also the hard things, the things that really hurt. But you, guess what? In Christ, you can look at that, your spouse and go, that is a future, perfected, glorified co-heir with Christ. I'm not dealing with some just fallen down, broken person who's just always going to be this way. You can use your redemptive imagination to go, they're a future, perfected co-heir with Christ. And it gets you through the hard stuff. But you see, that doesn't just work in marriage. It works in any relationship between two believers. And we can do that together. Creation gets it. Creation's eagerly waiting the revealing of the sons of God. Look, creation's got that view that, that we will one day be perfectly glorified, perfectly reflecting the glory of God in this world. Okay, third point, briefly. Steadfastly enduring the trials of life. We with suffer. We suffer with Jesus. Now, what does that mean? It, it, it certainly means that Jesus weeps with us. It certainly means that he feels our pain, but it doesn't merely mean just that. Because Jesus has suffered in a way that we will never have to if we're in him. Do you know that when he was on the cross and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was abandoned by his father. He experienced somehow, some way, an eternity of hell that was due us. He had to suffer that so that we don't have to. That gives us hope to walk through the rest of the suffering of this life. To know that that will not be our end because he bore it for us. That gets us through the rest. Hope is a future reality that is poured back into the present. It's poured back into the now. Now, you and I know our attempts to hold on to hope sometimes feel like meager, just barely hanging on, (laughs) getting through life, but it's wrapped up in union with Christ. His Spirit testifies with us that we're children of God. But our present experience might not be mountaintop existence. (laughs) 
We might just be barely holding on to hope. But the hope that we have is astoundingly beautiful, and here's why. I'll tell a story to illustrate it to close. There was once a little boy who went to see a famous uh, concert pianist, Ignacy Paderewski, Polish pianist. This is about 100 years ago. The little boy went with his mother to the show, and they had front row seats. And the mother turned to speak to who was sitting next to her, uh, this way, and her little boy was over here, and she got to chatting, and the lights started dimming, and so she looked up front, and to her horror, her little boy had climbed up on stage and sat down at the piano and started childishly pecking out chopsticks. She didn't know, well, what am I going to do? About that time, Paderewski comes out, and he leans over the child, and he goes, don't stop, keep playing. And he reaches around on one side and begins to add in the bass, and on the other side, he adds in the higher notes, and together they mesmerize the crowd with the most awesome version of chopsticks that you probably have ever heard. Sometimes our living out hope in this life feels like we're just amateur children pecking out what we can on the piano, but Jesus envelops it with beauty, hope beyond our ability to produce it. So what do we do? Don't stop playing. Don't stop playing the music of the gospel in your own heart. Don't stop holding on to hope because Jesus envelops you with the hope that he gives. Do you know this hope? Do you, do you know this Savior? I invite you to surrender to him if you've never tasted it. And for those of us who have tasted it, let's keep playing the music into our hearts. Father, thank you. Thank you for hope. Thank you for what you have given that we can't produce for ourselves, but praise you that we can't lose it. I pray for anyone here this morning who has not tasted that kind of hope, that you would open their eyes to see you, to surrender all to you, and to begin to play that music. Oh Lord, for all of us, would we cling to it? Would we cling to you, the source of all hope and joy? We offer all of this to you, for your glory and for our good. Amen.